Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Mile End service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. In the middle of a brand new sermon series called An Undivided Life. And in it, we're unpacking the call for followers of Jesus, for the people of God, to devote every aspect of their life under the Lordship of Jesus. And we do this, we're doing this because not only did Jesus create us, but he died in order to reunite and reconcile our whole lives back to himself. And the heart behind this series is simply this. God loves and cares about every aspect of our lives, not just some of it. Jesus said that he came so that we might have life and life in all its fullness. And that fullness of life is experienced in our daily journey of being loved by Jesus, of learning from him, and living like him in our world today. But of course, it goes without saying that living this fullness of life out in our world today proves very challenging. There are many things which can divide our loyalties, that can divide our attention, that can divide our minds, that can uh, divide our time and our desires. The reason that we often speak into things like money or power or sex or technology or ambition is because Jesus' call to follow him encompasses all these areas and more. And these are all areas that can either be devoted to him or if we let them, they can divide us away from him. An issue of divided devotion is not anything new in our world today and for the people of God. It's a very ancient issue. And so this is where we come to our passage for today in the book of Joshua. So I'll be reading from Joshua chapter 24. It's a bit of a long passage, but the words will also be uh, behind me on the screens that you can follow along to. But if you've got your Bibles, you can open them up as well. So I'll be reading from Joshua chapter 24. Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent sent for Balaam, son of Baal, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. 
The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites, but I gave them all into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow, so I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And then this is where we'll zoom into today. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors, that your ancestors worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua then said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. Let me just begin by just praying for us. Heavenly Father, as we read these words, I just pray that you would help us to open our hearts and yield them to you. Lord, I pray that as we um, dive into this passage, that you would be speaking to us both personally in our own journey of following you, but also as a church, as we commit to your loving presence and your loving ways in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we dive in, I just wanted to start by highlighting two books that I recently read, and these are coming up on the slides behind me. The first book, hopefully there's a slide. Uh, The first book is by a guy called Kevin DeYoung, and it's entitled Do Not Be True to Yourself, and the second is called The Call, written by Os Guinness. And the reason I mention these at the start is because I just want you to know and presume that any of the best things that I might mention today, or that is any way worth remembering, uh, comes from either one of these two books. So uh, just to say, Kevin DeYoung has written extensively on the passage that we've just read out today. So if that's something that you want to look at or dive into, then feel free to do that. It's a great read. Both books are really fab reads and great uh, and engaging books. That being said, let's dive into some context. The book of Joshua is a story of God leading his people into the promised land after delivering them from slavery in Egypt. 
If you've ever read Joshua, you'll probably remember all the battles such as Jericho or the falling of the walls of Jericho or the Battle of Ai and all the kings that they defeated under the leadership of a man called Joshua. Joshua had taken the mantle from Moses, who was leading the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he took the baton from Moses to lead the people of Israel now into the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And he allotted all this land according to the different tribes of Israel. And throughout the book, chapter after chapter after chapter, there is war and conquest, which is why by the time we get to this part, towards the end of the book, in chapter 23, it's quite striking that we read these verses. It says that the years passed and the Lord had given the people of Israel rest from all their enemies. By now, at this point in the story, Israel was finally at rest from war. They had control and possession of much of Canaan. The battles had been fought, enemies had been defeated, victory had been achieved. And so now Joshua is about to exit the scene. But before he does so, he calls all the leaders to gather together in Israel. He brings them together before his farewell. And by chapter 24, he assembles all the tribes and their leaders together to renew their covenant with God. And this covenant is the covenant that was originally established under Moses at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And it essentially, the arrangement was that God would be their God and that they would worship him and obey and follow his commands. And so after the exodus from Egypt, the decades journeying through the wilderness, the conquest and victory over Canaan, the obvious question now is, okay, Joshua, well, what's next? What about now? We've entered the promised land. We've allotted uh, all, all, all the different territories to the tribes. We're freed from slavery in Egypt. We're free people. We have rest from our enemies in Canaan. What's next? So when Joshua gets everyone together, he takes them through um, this sort of service of recommitment or recommitment service. And in this service, it's worth honing in on two things, I think, that he calls them to do. He calls them to first, remember, and second, choose. And we'll unpack this a bit more as we go. He calls them to remember, and he calls them to choose. So Joshua begins by reminding the people of their story, of their history, and more precisely, the story of God and his work among them. Joshua is speaking on behalf of God by giving them this reminder. He says this, Remember your ancestors. They were worshipping idols, but I called them to a new home and gave them descendants like the stars in the sky. I did that for you. Remember Moses and Aaron, you were slaves in Egypt, and I sent the plagues. I parted the sea. I swallowed up the Egyptians so that they would let you go, and I'd deliver you from their hands. Remember that before you even entered this land, I destroyed the Amorites and frustrated the plans of your enemies that were seeking to destroy you. While they wanted to curse you, I brought you blessing instead. And remember that when you entered Canaan, I parted the river Jordan for you, for you and drove away all your enemies. I gave you a land in which you did not build, and I gave you a land that you did not plant, and I did this all for you. So why does Joshua begin by reminding Israel of this story and their history? 
Well, I think it's important to note that the Bible repeatedly calls the people of God to remember. Remembering is not just because our memories are bad. Like my memory is terrible. Just earlier on, I forgot someone's name 10 seconds after they'd mentioned it to me. It's quite embarrassing, actually. But thankfully, our capacity and ability to remember is not based on our mental capacity or our intelligence. Thank God for that. Otherwise, I'd be doomed. But more than our mental ability, our ability to, uh, our call to remember is ultimately because it's a moral issue. It can often, uh, if, when we don't remember, it can often be a direct expression of sin. Let me just give you an example. We live in a city and in a culture that often prides itself on being autonomous, self-made, and independent. And when I indulge in these tendencies, I can nurture a sense that I am in no need of God. And so that leads me to no sense of gratitude or dependence on him. I forget. Ultimately, it then results in me forgetting what he's done for me at the cross, forgetting what he's provided for me in life, and even the daily goodness that he shows me on a day-to-day basis. But remembering is a practice that reunites our mind back to God's purpose for our lives. We can actively choose what we decide to remember. And actually, remember is a verb that gets used over 250 times in the Bible as a, as a call to keep in mind or to be mindful of God's work and his promises for us. And of course, the most powerful way we get to do that is to, is to practice remembering by repeatedly reading Scripture. And we'll come back to that later on. But Joshua wants a congregation to remember God's commitment to them, and he wants them to remember the commitment that they've made to God. And as Joshua is sharing these reminders, though, I can sort of imagine that he's, as he's saying these things, his listeners are probably enjoying it very much. They're probably like just uh, reveling in all the, the history and all the deliver- stories of deliverance and miracles that they have experienced. There's probably a few Pentecostal nods along the way. They're probably like, yes, amen, Joshua, preach it, brother. God is God, and he has given us victory. Preach it. But Joshua, notice, doesn't just leave them to revel and celebrate their history. He challenges them by saying, well, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors that they worship beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Yes, we should celebrate. Yes, we should acknowledge the story and the history of God's amazing grace and favor on us. But then Joshua moves them on from simply reveling in the past to think, what about now? What about now? If the Lord your God did all this for you, then the obvious response should be, well, to serve him alone. He saved you from slavery. He saved you from death. He saved you from your enemies. He saved you from idolatry. God is the savior of your life. But now you have to choose to make him the Lord of your life. You've been freed. You've entered the land. You've won the battles. Now, don't forget the reason that you were given this freedom. And more than that, don't forget who gave you this freedom. 
So after this reminder, he presents them with a choice, and he effectively says, if one of these other gods are, de- are desirable and true, then by all means go serve that god. And if it seems undesirable or it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, then don't do it. But you can't ride on the fence on this one. You have to make a choice. And this isn't the first time that the people are given a choice. We see this time and time again. For instance, we see it when Moses gave the people of Israel the law. He says, now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. And even 500 years after Joshua, when the people of Israel have actually continually chosen to serve other gods and lived a divided life, after they'd forgotten the story of God's freedom and deliverance and their call to serve him as their Lord, the prophet Elijah comes onto the scene and represents them with a choice. He says, How long will you limp between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now, why is this important to mention? I think this choice is really, really important. It's really significant, and it reveals something about who God is and what he is calling us to Uh, Theologian Os Guinness unpacks this a bit more, and I think he does a very helpful job. So I'm just going to read out what he says. The Jews emphasize that the entire understanding of trust in the Bible is not a matter of blind submission. They point out that though the Torah, which is the Old Testament, famously sets out 613 different commands, there is no word in Hebrew for obedience. The closest equivalent is the word shema, to listen, to heed, to hearken to pay attention and act accordingly. In other words, God is the sovereign Lord of the universe, but he is no dictator. Rather, a free God called his free people, who are then free to listen actively, to deliberate within themselves, to pay attention, and then to decide how to respond. The covenant represented the rule of law, providing freedom and justice for all, and it was freely offered and freely chosen with the full consent of the governed. Three times the people of Israel declared, we will do everything the Lord has said. And then he goes on to say, that the call of Jesus allows neither uh, refusal nor rivals. It costs us everything, every allegiance that competes with him and every practice that contradicts his lordship. As always, the call is all. But also, as always, the choice to have no choice is underscored as a choice. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, he says that although the disciples to whom he speaks were already following him, once more, he sets them free to choose or reject him. So, God gives the people a choice. Either follow him and serve him, or follow the other gods of the land and serve them. Now, what this means is that any genuine act of devotion relies on love and not just an act of duty or fear. It can only be done if we truly, truly believe that God has the best for us and is the best for us and will, event, will ultimately result in our joy, even if in the moment it feels difficult. Uh, just a really silly illustration and analogy about this. 
Uh, one way that I often manage to win some hus husband points with Jess is by buying her flowers. Now, on a number of occasions, she's hinted that flowers uh, is her thing, and she really loves it, and it makes her happy. And I will admit that I don't buy her nearly as many flowers that she deserves, but when, uh, when I do buy her flowers, I see the, the joy and the difference it makes. Before I met her, flowers were nev never really my thing. Well, before I met her, I had no one to buy flowers for, so that's really a mute point. But the point is, she likes flowers. Now imagine this. If one day I get her a lovely bunch of tulips or lilies, or maybe I want to splash out and buy her a whole bouquet of roses, maybe I add a chocolate in there, who knows? It's Valentine's Day soon, so it might happen. But imagine on Valentine's Day, I present her with this huge bouquet of flowers, and she says to me, oh, Adnan, oh, Adnan, these are beautiful. Thank you so much, and gives me a huge hug and a kiss. And then as she says that, suppose in that moment I just hold up my hands, and my response is, in a very matter-of-fact way, to say, please don't mention it. It's just my duty. What, what do you think happens in that moment? Well, you could say, actually, me expressing my husband duty is a noble thing. Do we not honor those whom we dutifully serve? Well, not really, right? Not if there's no heart in it. There's a bit of an inherent contradiction saying dutiful roses. But if I'm not moved by affection for Jess as a person, the roses don't honor her. In fact, they might belittle her. There's little honor if all I can muster is a sense of uh, something calculated as marital duty. The flowers would simply be like a thin covering for the fact that I, I don't feel the worth in my heart or see the beauty in, in her to spark affection. Or perhaps, let's say I take her out for a fancy dinner, and she's delighted and asks, oh, well, why did you do this? And my response is, well, it's just my duty, love. I think that would just come across as very dishonoring. But let's say I said something along the lines of, I do this because nothing makes me happier than to be with you. Well, that now changes things, doesn't it? Choosing to serve her because I delight in her as a person brings more honor than if I simply chose to do it out of duty. So, we're given a choice to either love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and as, as a result of that, to experience true joy, or we can choose not to and set our hearts on other things that we feel are more worthy and more significant. And Joshua himself says to the people of Israel, that he has made up his mind about who he finds the most desirable person to follow. He makes it very clear about the direction that he's choosing with some of the most well-known uh, words or verses in the Bible. And you've probably uh, seen this on plaques or in people's homes or on coffee mugs as well. He says, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Right after he reminds them of the story of God as their savior, and challenges them to choose him as their Lord, he then gives them, uh, they, they then reply to him uh, with what seems to be a very good answer. 
right? Their, their response seems very good. They say, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. They recognize that it was God who brought them from Egypt and drove out the enemy nations. And therefore, they conclude, we too will serve the Lord because he is our God. But notice Joshua's response here. He doesn't just say, oh, that's wonderful. That's great. Praise God. See you in church next Sunday. Wow, it's great. In fact, he says this, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God, holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. Gulp. Now, why does Joshua give them such a harsh rebuke? These are very stark words. It seems that the people of Israel seem to know all the right answers. They were even able to summarize everything Joshua had said and agreed with him. You might imagine them saying something like this. Come on. Seriously, Joshua, man, come on. We know this stuff. Why are you repeating it to us for? We're Israelites. We know this. We're the people of God. Of course we're not going to serve the Egyptian gods or the Amorites. We follow Yahweh. But ever since leaving Egypt and wandering in the wilderness, and even entering the promised land, Joshua knew that they weren't single-minded in their devotion. Joshua's aim wasn't to get an obvious and try answers. He wasn't going to accept a half-hearted, double-minded obedience because he knew that God wasn't going to accept it either. The people then redouble their commitment. They say, no, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua sort of finally relents and says, essentially, all right, you've said it. You've said so yourselves. You're not going to keep your foot in two camps. You're not going to divide your loyalties and love. You're going to serve the Lord and the Lord alone. Let's see where this goes. Joshua's words must have fallen on really, it must have felt really tough at the time. Like it feels tough reading it now when you're, when you're reading these words. It's very, very stark. It feels like um, it's, a, it's, it's a heavy challenge, right? But it's worth noting that Joshua wasn't speaking to people outside of the community of faith. This wasn't like an, an evangelism rally. He was speaking to people who did, who did know God. He was speaking to people who considered themselves believers. He was speaking to people who probably would have belonged to a church if they were alive today. It's to these people, he says, choose today whom you will serve. If it was today, I sort of imagine Joshua might sound a bit more like this. You say you follow Jesus. You come to church. You own lots of Bibles in various translations. But do you serve the Lord alone? If your friends are God, serve them. If your phone is God, serve it. If sports saved you from your sins, serve sports. If your work or your grades make your life worth living, then serve them. If entertainment or parties are what give your life purpose, then serve them. But if Jesus is God, then stop trying to hedge your bets. If money or sex or status are God, then follow them. 
But if Jesus is Lord, then follow him. But let's not be divided or double-minded in thinking we can do both, or that we can serve both, or that we can hold on to both with equal loyalty and equal love. The choice to follow Jesus is the most joyful and liberating decision that we can ever make. But it's also the most serious decision that we will ever make. In the rest of his message, Joshua essentially says this, if you want to make a serious commitment, then throw away all these other idols that are dividing your loyalty. Your commitment needs to be seen, not just heard. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I read these words of Joshua, I'm sort of astounded. I admire his faith and his courage and his resilience in the face of odds. I admire that he stands up for something extraordinary. I look at him and his level of courage and, and, and the choice he makes to follow God when everyone else seems doubtful and fearful. When everyone else looks at the land and says, no, we have no chance of entering and obtaining this land, he looks at it in faith and says, no, God has told us he's given it to us, and he looks at it in, in faith and takes God at his word. But I think it can be easy reading stories like Joshua and forget that the choice of following God doesn't just happen in the extraordinary moments in life. It happens mostly in the day-to-day, ordinary arenas of life. Os Guinness, again, I think puts it really well when he says, we look for the big things to do, but Jesus took a towel and washed the disciples' feet. We presume the place to be is the mountaintop of vision, but he sends us back into the valley. We like to speak and act out of the rare moments of inspiration, but he requires our obedience in the routine, the unseen, and the thankless. Our idea for ourselves is the grand moment and the hushed crowd His is the ordinary things when the footlights are switched off. Now, as I mentioned just at the start uh, of the talk, by the time that we read Joshua 24, God has given Israel rest from all its enemies. The fighting has ceased, and there was peace. There was a sense of normalcy in, in life. People could now do things like go shopping. They could go on their holiday breaks. They could have leisure time. They could maybe even plant a vineyard or two and enjoy some homemade wine and cheese. But before they're able to get too comfortable, Joshua repeats something at the very start of the book. And you might be familiar with this because, again, it's something that we uh, were reminded of quite often. In chapter 1, God tells Joshua and the people to be strong and courageous as he leads them into the land and into battle. And towards the end of the book, we see this command reappear again. He says this, Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. Now, what what does this highlight? Why is this important and significant? Well, I think it highlights this. Apparently, the most difficult task before Israel wasn't defeating their enemies in battle. It uh, It wasn't even defeating Jericho and seeing the walls come tumbling down. It wasn't even facing the 31 kings in the land of Canaan. 
But the biggest task for them would be surrendering their idolatry. It would be conquering and surrendering the areas that they've made most significant in their own hearts, which was holding them back from undivided devotion to God. This is why I think Joshua's very last command in the book is quite important. He says, throw away your foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord. Yield your hearts to the Lord. Israel needed to reaffirm their commitment even after being at rest. And perhaps especially because they were at rest. The choice they had is the same most basic choice that we need to make today and every single day. Will we trust Jesus? Will we follow Jesus? Will we keep following Jesus? Joshua's call is a call to an undivided life. It's a call to surrender our whole hearts with all its divided loyalties. It's a choice to bring it to him because we know that he is the best thing for us and he has the best for us. And so he gives us two ways to respond to God's undivided call. He says, remember who God is. Remember what he's done for us. Remember that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to die for us so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Remember. And then he says to choose Choose to follow him today and surrender anything else that is occupying the priority of our heart. Remember and choose. Now we get to do these two things every single day of our lives. God has granted us the the grace and the autonomy to practice this and and see it fulfilled in every area of life. Just three quick points practical points that I've personally found helpful in uh, practicing remembering and choosing. And maybe these are just some principles that are helpful for others, but of course, it won't be for everyone. And maybe you might just want to take the principle and see how it could apply to your own life. These are just some habits that I've practiced daily most mornings since uh, the start of last year. And the first is this. Most mornings when um, I start the day, I use something physical to remind me of God's spiritual presence in my day. So for me, that is just simply lighting a candle each morning. I find this just a helpful reminder of God's, uh, the light of God's presence throughout my whole day. And as I light it, I just simply thank God that his light never burns out, that it never gets extinguished, whatever the day might bring. And the second is I'll read and I'll repeat scripture. For most of the year, uh, last year, I read through Psalm 90 every day. It's a prayer of Moses, and it, it's just a way of reminding me of the eternal nature of God, the fragileness of my humanness, and my daily need for God's wisdom and love. And this year, I've uh, set myself to read uh, one psalm each month on repeat uh, every day. And I just find that repetition helps it seep into my soul. Like I'm one of those people who, a big issue I have is whenever I read something, as soon as I close the book, I just forget. Like my mind goes blank. And so repetition just helps. And lastly, I I read a simple liturgy uh, to devote my day to God. It just helps me express my desire to dedicate my heart, my mind, my body, my soul to him, and to love him more than anything that he has blessed me with. 
and to love others as I love myself. And there, um, there, are, there are liturgies that we've also printed. They're available completely free. You're welcome to take them at the back. That are also helpful um, if, that is, if that is something you're, you're wanting. And these are just some things that I've found practically helpful in my day-to-day rhythm uh, of reminding myself of God's love and then choosing to follow him in my day. And I just want to caveat this by saying, uh, and when you fail, and if you do, like me, that's okay. The point is to keep going and devote even our failure to God. Um, quite often I can treat this like I do my um, Duolingo streak. I don't know how many of you use Duolingo, you know, the language app that teaches you a new language. Like if I fail my streak one day, I'm like, oh my gosh, no, what have I done? I've lost it. Like I need to rebuild it. And maybe a big part of devoting our hearts is actually surrendering the idols of, uh, of, of productivity and perfection. Maybe that's where we need to begin. And it's maybe simply committing to something simply because it's good for our souls, even if it doesn't feel productive or perfect. It might not feel successful, but thankfully the art of devotion isn't about success. It's about embracing God's love for us and his grace in our failures. I wonder if the band would come back up. I wonder um, in this moment, as we bring ourselves to recenter our minds and our hearts to God, that we just, I might just leave a minute of silence before we begin singing. I wonder if you'd stand with me as I pray. But I'll be praying for, um, for us, and I'll be praying a psalm uh, from Psalm 86. And it's a psalm asking God to give us an undivided heart as we seek to worship him. And you can feel free to make it your own prayer. Feel free to make it... Um, Make it your own heart's call to God in this moment. So I'll read it and I'll, I'll just leave 30 seconds or so for us to, for it to seep in into our hearts and into our minds. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I'm in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For, great, for, your, for you are great and you do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart, that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love towards me. You have delivered me from the depths.
from the realm of the dead. Yeah, Father, that is our prayer this morning for an undivided heart that we may praise you, worship you, that we may be reminded of your love for us. Lord, as we choose this day, may we choose the splendor of your name above everything else. Thank you that this choice can be made because you have chosen us as your people. You have called us a chosen people. That you have lavished your love and your grace on us. And we need not make this choice out of fear or duty, but we can make it in the love that you have shown for us. Thank you that you don't set your affection on us because we are better people or more numerous or strong, or capable. For we are the least of people, but it was because you love us. You love us because you love us because you love us. And may you win our hearts every single day, Lord. You are worthy. Amen. Amen.